Have you dreamed of attending Harvard for graduate school? Would you like to pursue a career in education with the premier brand in education on your resume? Let's find out how Sadie Poland did it and how she can help you get into an elite graduate program. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 518th episode of Admission Straight Talk, Accepted's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Before we dive into today's interview, I want to mention a free resource at Accepted that can benefit you if you are applying to graduate school. The challenge at the heart of admissions is showing that you both fit in at your target schools and stand out in the applicant pool. Accepted's free download, Fitting In and Standing Out, The Paradox at the Heart of Admissions, will show you how to do both. Master this paradox, and you are well on your way to acceptance. Download your free guide at accepted.com slash F-I-S-O. Again, it's accepted.com slash F-I-S-O for fitting in and standing out. I want to welcome today our guest, Sadie Poland. Sadie was raised in Alaska, attended UC Davis, where she majored in community and regional development, and then earned her master's in education from Harvard in 2017, concentrating on education and community. She also worked at Harvard Center for European Students, where she was an interim grants and internship coordinator and assistant to the directors. At Harvard's Kennedy School of Government from 2013 to 2022, she became first the program coordinator and then the program director. In that capacity, she directed the largest domestic internship program at Harvard, oversaw grant making for 200 plus internships worldwide. And she also frequently and informally assisted her interns when it came time for them to apply to grad school. As an applicant, Harvard administrator and advisor, she has learned what elite graduate programs in the social sciences, especially in government and education and law, are looking for. It gives me great pleasure to have on Admission Straight Talk for the first time, Sadie Poland. Sadie, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your attraction to community work, which seems to be a theme in your educational and professional path to date? Yes, uh, it definitely is. I grew up in a small town in Alaska. Most towns in Alaska are small by standards outside of Alaska. It's this little town called Homer. It's beautiful. Alaska in general is beautiful. If anyone gives a chance to visit, I highly recommend it. In the um, summer. For, if you like winter, winter is great. It's definitely winter. So if snow is not your thing, wait till later okay. for sure. Small town, you know, it was 250 miles away from a Costco, an hour and a half away from a Fred Meyer, which is kind of the Northwest equivalent of a Target. I remember when the first gap opened up in the whole state, like small, small and rural in a way that not a lot of places are, but also a super wonderful place to grow up. The community was very tight knit or maybe chunky knit. Even when it wasn't tightly knit, there were always connections because you never know, right? Like my music teacher was also the father of students that I went to school with was also, there were just all of these connections in a small town. And I think also because I grew up in such a small town when I went to college, uh, one of the things that I was most excited about was going to a big school. I was thinking, I wanted, you see, Berkeley is enormous. <laughs> I, yeah, I went to Davis, but they're about the oh, same Davis. size. Oh, Davis. Um, oh, all right. I don't know where I got Berkeley um, 
And they're both big. They're both big. And that was one of the motivating factors for me was I was like, oh, I want fewer people to know me when I go to the grocery store. However, when I got to Davis, they did. Fewer people knew me at the grocery store. (laughs) And I also found myself seeking community. And it was more of a, you know, I sought it out intentionally. It was an intentional community. I was on the rowing team in college. And that group of people really became my community. I am still friends with them now decades, almost decades later. I studied abroad a couple times in high school and in college. And again, like really noticing how community impacts my own life and the seen and unseen forces that impact all of our lives. And it was something that I explored as an undergraduate. That was my undergraduate degree. It was something that I continued in my graduate studies because I just, I love it. I love seeing how people come together in ways that are intentional and that sometimes are in ways that are intentional that they don't know, like what a good public space can create for the people who are in it without them realizing it. For example? You know, like I've definitely noticed it in like town squares or even something smaller than a town square, which we see a lot now, like a little parklet between like by my house right now, there's one between a grocery store and a coffee shop. Instead of it being a street, it's a little parklet. And there are always people there. There are always people gathering. Sometimes I see the same people. You say hi. But if it was a street, that wouldn't happen, right? And so just the ways that space plays into community and how it's created. I'm fortunate enough now to live on a street that is very community-oriented. It's only one block long, so I think that helps. Yeah, and I just love I love being part of all different kinds of communities and also brought it into my graduate work and my professional work, working in politics and public service community is definitely a huge part of that work. Great. You were talking, I was thinking about, I have an elderly mother who's in a retirement community and there's a lobby there for independent living. Uh And uh, so everybody has to be mobile. They can walk with a walker or a cane, but they they have to have mobility and the, just the importance of the lobby. Yeah. And right. That, and, and if that, there wasn't it is its a lobby, own community and it is yeah, its own community. It is. And if there wasn't a little, even a little gathering space, where would people do that? You know, where would you right. socialize? Where would you say hi and stop for a five minute chat? Right. Right. Yeah. Now you wrote me when we were corresponding about this podcast and getting ready that and you wrote me and I'm quoting, I've also often felt like I have a clear idea of what I want and that it doesn't fit into any particular box. So choosing a grad school was an exercise and finding a box that did fit. Can yeah. you describe that exercise and how you came yeah. to choose Harvard's master's in education? Yeah. So it doesn't sound like it was just Harvard, right? That doesn't. No, no it wasn't. And for a while I thought about other graduate schools. You know, I ended up at a graduate school of education, which I love and I loved being there, but I thought through a lot of different graduate schools because, you know, I thought about law school and realized I had no desire to practice law, so I don't need a law degree. I thought about a school of government because of all of my work in public service. And I was like, you know, that's not exactly it either for me. And I found it in education, not necessarily as a classroom teacher, although I've done that way in my past, but more as both education is in in most people's lives in some way at some point, whether it's their own education, their kids' education, Wherever it is, it plays a part in people's lives. And I think because of how pervasive it is, it can be a real source of community and a place to have a lot of impact. 
because everyone comes through some kind of education system. So how are we building it, strengthening it, using it? And so that's where I ended up, you know, and to me, I was like, oh, this is what I love community. I love this exploration. This is what I want to do. But figuring out how to put that into a graduate program wasn't, well, I know I want to be a doctor. And so here's the path. You know, I have friends. I, I worked at Harvard for a long time. I worked in Boston, which has a whole lot of science, like biotech science. So I knew a lot of people in the sciences. And they're like, well, what words do you search when you're interested in something? You know, I search proteomics or, you know, <laughs> mitochondria. And I was like, oh, I don't have those search terms because sometimes, you know, when you're looking at jobs or graduate schools, people use words differently versus in the sciences or in law where it's more clear, right? Like a legal brief is a legal brief. I mean, what finally convinced you that Harvard was the right program? So Harvard recently restructured its master's in education program. When I attended my, my, the program that I was part of, so there's the whole graduate school of education, and then there were a bunch of different programs, you know, higher education, school leadership, lots of things like that. I, the program that I did was specialized studies. Mm-hmm. And so part of my application was saying, here's what that means. Here's what I want to do. And here's why this is the right place for me. So I really looked into what courses are they offering? What research is happening here? And thought one of, this might be something we talk about later, but I'll jump in. Um, one of the things that I ended up loving about specialized studies in particular was how varied the people in my program were. There was someone who came from mid Atlantic coast and was from like worked in Appalachia and he worked in artistic education. And there was someone who came from Northern California and worked with middle school age children, but it was all like plant-based farm-based learning and how, you know, developing really different curricula. There were people who owned their own businesses, but they were education focused. It was just so, you know, the breadth of the people that I was in, not even a classroom with sometimes because we, part of specialized studies, which I really liked was we developed our own curriculum of like, here's the program of classes that I want to fulfill what I intend to study. But we would have cohort meetings and there was such a diversity of perspective and experiences in the room, it was incredibly beneficial to me. And I loved that part of it, which I didn't really suspect going in. Wow. Okay. Sounds good. So, I mean, you obviously didn't just look at rankings and you didn't just look at the curriculum. You looked at a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you remember what did you like most about your experience? Well, I guess you said it was the people, right? Or it was am I putting words in your mouth? No, it was the people. It was also, you know, I found myself a couple times over my time at Harvard, the Graduate School of Education really surprised by how much I would learn in a particular class and how I could apply it outside of where I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one like one example, which for anyone who I knew of who went to the grad school of ed after me. I was like, oh, you have to take this class. It was a negotiations class. And the professors Mm. were from the law school. They came from the program on negotiation. And I was like, you know, this sounds interesting. And I'm not really sure exactly how this fits, but I think it will. And I took it and I was like, I can use this everywhere and in everything. And to really think about, 
you know, for me in terms of community and the programs that I was building, the people I was working with, whether that was um, external organizations, internal organizations at Harvard, students, like really getting a good feel of the interaction of all of that and how negotiation is a part of our lives all the time, Mm -hmm. whether it's like, where do you want to go to dinner? I don't know. Where do you want to go to dinner? Or like, I know where I want to go to dinner. Let me talk first, right? (laughs) To all the the actual professional work that I did. I ended up using it everywhere. And that surprised me at the time, but I still look back on it and I'm like, that was a great class. And there were other surprises like that too. So I loved that in my graduate work, I was surprised in a really positive way. What could have been improved? So I think that they have actually done this, but it's a fast program. It's a one-year program. I don't, I don't know if this would be an improvement or if it's just a selfish request. I'm like, oh, it could be longer. Really? You know, <laughs> sometimes one year is really nice because if you're taking a break from work, yeah. then you only have to take a leave of absence for a year or, you know, right. it's a year versus two years or three years, which can be harder depending on where you are in your career. Yeah. So it's really nice in that way. But also I'm like, oh, I want to keep taking classes. Um, Not so fast. Yeah. Yeah. It went really fast. All right. In working, let's, let's move forward a little bit in your career. So you also worked for quite a bit of time at Harvard's Kennedy school of government. Did you, did you detect any common thread or characteristic among the students? And it doesn't have to be one. It can be more than one. Yeah. So the way that I always described when people ask me what I did, I would say that I get to work with really smart young people who know that they want to do good in the world and are figuring out what that looks like for them. So it's it was all students who are interested in politics and public service. So they have some kind of like thread that they're tugging on and figuring out exactly where that leads. You know, what does it actually look like to work in policy or to work, you know, in political journalism or to work abroad at an NGO? And, you know, if you're into computer science, like, that's great. That's also available in government. It's available in the private sector. There's civic tech. There's all these different ways that that interest can be applied and working with students as they kind of worked it out for themselves of like, oh, I really like this part of it, but I didn't like this. And I like that. But the through line for everyone was, I know I want to do like, I know I want to do some kind of good. And I'm figuring out what that looks like for myself and getting to be part of that was like, it was a real privilege. And like social ROI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Okay. I, it was interesting when um, I once visited Harvard business school, and I met with one of the professors there and, and he you know, we talked, I don't know, half hour for an hour. And he asked me, what do you see as the common thread among your, your, your clients accepted to Harvard Business School? And I said, leadership and impact. And he kind of smiled, the conversation moved on. And then as I was getting up to leave, I thought, I was thinking to myself, you idiot, why don't you ask him that question? <laughs> he sees a lot more, more Harvard <laughs> students than I do. So I asked him mm-hmm. and he said, I smiled because that's exactly what I would have answered myself, mm-hmm. leadership yeah. and impact. So yeah. for Harvard Kennedy School, I guess, it, it, not that they don't have leadership and impact. I'm sure they have that too. Yeah. But it's this drive for, for social good. Yeah. And in terms of leadership and impact, where you want to have that leadership and impact, yeah. right? Like it's, it's a specific sector, right? right? It's in the public sector in some way. And part of my role at Harvard with the students I worked with was like, 
it wasn't always expanding, but it was being inclusive of the entire ecosystem of what makes up politics and public service, because it is certainly federal, state, local, international government. And it's also all of the organizations that work in and around government, you know, like I mentioned, political journalism and advocacy organizations. And it also is business. Yeah, yeah, completely. It's not for profits, it's for profits. Yeah. And it's how you approach it, right? And like, with with what what goal? And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. But, you know, with all the students that I worked with, that was a driving force. Great. A great answer. Thank you. Now, you managed highly selective political and public service summer programs and internships. What was the key for applicants gaining acceptance to these programs? Um, There might be more than one key, frankly. It might be different buckets or different keys for certain buckets. But is it possible to generalize? So in broad strokes, yes, definitely. I would say two things. Authenticity and also demonstration of knowledge. So what I mean by that is one of the programs that I ran, students could have, there were a hundred different organizations that we worked with and students could apply to work with two. They would create unique applications for each of them and submit them. They'd be considered separately, but they could only apply to two. And so, you know, I was on the back end and looking at a thousand applications. It was every year it would be really obvious who picked an organization because they had heard of the name and who picked an organization because they recognized that they wanted to do that work. And so sometimes that might be like, I recognize the organization's name and you know, it might be like an environmental firm, but the particular opportunity was in the communications department. So that's a specific department within an organization. And if you're just telling me, your environmental background, that's great. I also want to hear why communications, like why is environmental communications important? Because scientific communications is incredibly important, but I need to know that you understand what this is. So that's the knowledge piece. And then authenticity, just like bringing your full self and not trying, you know, not, not overinflating, not downplaying, just being like, I, I actually think that the first piece, the information leads to authenticity. Like if you really understand what you're applying to, you understand why. Right. And then you get to be fully authentic, fully yourself. And it comes through in the application. But if you don't really know what you're applying to, and it's really just because of a name, it's, it, it shows. I, you can read it in an application. It's just like the excitement's not there in the same way. Right. I agree with you entirely. And as you were talking, I was thinking if, if you have that knowledge, you'll also have the authenticity because you won't have yeah. to fake it. Exactly. Exactly. Or you won't, you won't seem illogical either way. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> um, I'll never forget the time I was, I was talking with a prospective client and he wanted to apply to London. He wanted to apply to, to I think, INSEAD or HEC. And I was asking him why, and I just wasn't getting any kind of mm-hmm. substantive answer. And finally he said, well, my girlfriend is there. Yeah. And I said, well, that's, that's, a, that's an authentic answer. Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't, exp- I mean, you know, like they're not going to be that. That's, that's okay as an as a, in addition right. to the programmatic yeah. answers and reasons, right? The professional right. reasons, the educational reasons. I said, my, my, you know, my girlfriend lives there. That's, that's fine. But, um, 
you know, that those other reasons have to be there also. And his interest yeah. didn't align. And it was, it was anyway. Um, yeah. You can tell, right? You can like, just tell. Exactly. You can just tell. When you were at, at Kennedy, now you mentioned this, this drive for social good. Did, you know, did you also see the kind of alignment and, and logical reasoning among the students there? So for graduate students, yes. I think that that is part of why they were at the Kennedy School of Government is like they had thought through that process. For the undergraduates that I worked with, they were on that path. Like they were gathering information for right. themselves right. so that they could make that authentic choice of like, you know, I explored this. I thought I would like it. It turns out I don't. That's great. That like, That's I'm all for That's making that fun. decision. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's okay. Because once you start saying, I know I don't like this, that's great. Like there are decision fatigue in terms of what you want to do with graduate school, with your life, in terms of your career, decision fatigue is readily available. So if you can eliminate things, that is also great news. Then you and if you can eliminate it fairly else. early on, if you can yeah. eliminate it, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you do get to the thing, this is what I want to do. It's an authentic, you can say it with confidence and with authenticity. Right. It's a real eureka moment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What do you, advice would you have for someone interested in pursuing graduate education, either in education or in public service or government or some of the areas that you have worked in? And again, the answer doesn't have to be the same for all of them because they're different yeah. fields. I mean, my first, my first like responses like, great, tell me why for any of them, right? Like, great, tell me why. And I'm not asking you to like convince me. I just want to hear. Actually, in this, in this case, it's not even that I want to hear. I want like, I could hear your tone without the words and kind of get a feel for your answer, right? Of like, are you excited? Like, are you just like excited? I know I want to do this. Or is this like, I guess I have to go to grad school because it's the next thing that I do, right? Because I'm, I'm on the oh. treadmill. Right, exactly. So like figuring out why for you, and it doesn't have to be the same for each person. It doesn't have to, you know, if if what excites you is everybody in my family's an attorney and I've seen people work in law and I love it. Like they love it. I'm excited. I'm like, great, great. That's fine. Like if that is genuinely exciting to you, great. Or if it's like, nobody in my family has ever gone to law school and I think I could do real good, right? Like it, the, the content of the answer matters less than like the authenticity of it. And so for anyone who's thinking about graduate school, ask yourself why. It's okay if it's just a feeling at first, but take some time and really figure out like why and why now. Like right. for me, I mean, I took a long time off between undergraduate and graduate school, and I'm so glad that I did. It gave me the opportunity to have confidence that this was the right choice for me, you know, to be further in my career so that I applied the information and the knowledge that I gained in a way that was different than I would have fresh out of undergraduate. And like, that's not always, that's not always the case, right? I needed that time for myself if someone had asked me why grad school now, when I was 25, I would have been like, I don't know, because I don't have anything else. I don't have a better answer of what to do. So I so guess I'll you. do this. Whereas when I actually went back to grad school, I was like, I am excited to take this learning and apply it in my professional life. Like, I'm excited to be back in the classroom. I'm excited to be exchanging ideas with my peers and with professors and with teaching fellows. Like, 
I am excited to go back into that environment. But that for me, that wouldn't have been true earlier. So taking that time was important. So why and also why now? A lot of applicants I know, and their parents, maybe even more than the applicants, are very concerned that if they stop going to school, they won't go back. Yeah. Um, that's not a good reason to go to school, by the way. It's not, it's not great. <laughs> it's a bad reason to continue in school. But that is a very common concern. Yeah. Did, did you have that concern when you were taking the break or? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I did. And I was also like, oh, gosh, if I don't go soon, I have to take a standardized test. And I haven't taken a standardized test or any test in a very long time like that. The most intimidating part for me was the standardized test. I think it was also for me, the part that I had the, you know, I felt like I had the least control over, like I could put together, I knew what I wanted to study. I knew why I knew why this school, right? Like I had answers to those and the statement the of purpose was going to be a breeze. Yeah. I was like, no, I know this. I know who I want to work with. Like, yeah. I know what I'm excited about in the GRE. I was like, I couldn't, it's been over 10 years since I took a standardized test. I don't even, you know, I know I have to fill it. Do scantrons even look the same? They don't. They didn't, by the way. It was now on a computer and I had to go to a building and it was, you know, it was all different. And that to me was very intimidating. So yes, I can understand that fear. And also I went back, right? Mm -hmm. Like the thing that was the most scary was fine. Like it was fine. I got over it. I took the test. I got in. My verbal score was definitely better than my math score. (laughs) <laughs> but, but I knew that was going to be the case going in but you know it was it was okay also because I had my purpose I knew why I wanted to go back and therefore like yes the standardized test was the most intimidating part and that was fine like gonna... it was what it was and I studied for it I took some practice tests I went to coffee shops and like tried to focus in a different way in a new environment to prepare for a new test environment. And then it was, you know, a couple hour test. It was over. Okay. Now you also have a diversity equity and inclusion certificate from Cornell university. Yeah. If one of the questions I see more frequently, and I'm sure Mm -hmm. um, many people have it, if applicants are asked a DEI question, how can they approach it if they are not from an underrepresented group? Yeah. So for me, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it it should not only be from, and it should not only be work that is done by people in underrepresented groups. That's not diversity, equity, and inclusion. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is all of us. Like it is everyone. And so if you are from an underrepresented group, what does that mean to you? Like if you have some kind of privilege what do you do with it? How do you use that to benefit not just yourself, right? Like how do you use your voice or whatever power that you have in a way that is in service of diversity, equity, and inclusion? So that would be, in other words, it'd be about helping or being more inclusive or? Yeah. So, I mean, first, like what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to the applicant, right? Like there's, it's not, you know, 
much like community, there's not like, here's what this means, right? So think about what I was thinking of means. asking you, how would you define community? But I decided I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I'll draw you a picture of it. Um, <laughs> um, a diagram? So, <laughs> exactly. So what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to you, to you as an individual, as the applicant? And then what does that mean in this context, right? Like, what are you bringing to this environment? Because schools think about their classes holistically, right? Like it's individuals, Mm -hmm. but it's also, what is this picture? It's, you know, like those pinpoint paintings, like, yes, it's that, but then it's also the whole, yes, thank you. (laughs) It's an impressionist painting. You've got like this one little area that you can't tell what it is, but then when you look at the whole thing, they're looking at both. And so what does it mean for you as an individual? And then how does that play with the entire group of people? So, you know, like, people are going to answer that differently. And I think that if it is from an authentic place and really is about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Like those are three different words, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you're writing from that standpoint, that's what you want to be doing. If you're from a group that is not underrepresented, like think about, like, think about those two questions. What does diversity, equity, inclusion mean to you? And how does that look in this environment in terms of your graduate school? Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. What would you have liked me to ask you? Ooh. What would you like listeners to know? So one of the favorite questions I've, I ever got in an interview, and I'm going to say this to you, and then I just thought to myself, I don't have a great answer for this right now, but I'm going to say it to you anyway, because it was authentically what came to mind. I was in an interview, and the last question they asked was, what are you reading right now? It was during the pandemic. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I reading right now? It was like, you know, probably fall 2020. It was, it was early. And I had been reading about a 20 book mystery series. Whoa. And I was like, I was like, okay, here's my answer. Um, and I told them, I was like, you know, I love to read. And also right now at this point in my life, I'm reading a lot of kind of escapist literature to really just like take myself out of where the I pandemic. am now. Yeah, exactly. The pandemic. But I've always thought that that was a great, just a great question. And, you know, and all, I was nervous giving it in a professional context. And also I was like, well, This is just like, this is actually what I'm reading. And if I'm going to bring my whole self to this, to like this question and answer, like that's actually what, what I'm reading, what I'm doing and that's okay. And I've, you know, to tie this back, like it actually sparked a great conversation with the person who I was in, in the, in the event with. And they were like, oh my gosh, I've been blah, 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 blah. Um, And I think that it goes back to like, if you understand yourself and where you're coming from, it comes through, right? Like if I had been nervous and been like, Oh gosh, I really don't want to tell you. And, or, you know, if I had just been like, well, shoot, here we go. This Three is my years ago, I read. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or, or try to be like, well, I'm currently reading a biography of someone and it's three parts. I'm only in the first part. I was like, no, right now what I'm reading is a bunch of mysteries. Like they're easy. They're quick. They're entertaining. And, so in terms of, you know, you asked me what I wish you had asked. And for me, that question just sparks things in people. And also as I'm answering it, it makes me think back to authenticity, right? Of like. So what are you reading now? 
What am I? I just started a book last night. It's called Night Train to Lisbon. I'm about five pages in, so I'm not <laughs> super sure what it's about. Okay. Uh, but I'm going on a trip to Portugal in a couple of months, and it's it's fiction, but I really enjoy exploring yeah. place through location. And so someone said it was a good book about Portugal, and I was like, okay. I mean, it's pretty dead so far. I think right. the person who wrote it was also a philosopher. So we'll see how that plays out. What <laughs> are you reading silly. right now? Well, right now I'm, I'm in the middle of a few things in terms of, of right now I'm reading a book called the coddling of the American mind, oh. um, which I'm, I'm actually enjoying. I'm finding it a very interesting book. And then I have, I am, however, in the middle of a, a series of historical novels. I like history and historical novels mm-hmm. in particular and the series is called After Dunkirk. And oh, okay. have you heard of it? No. I mean, I've heard of Dunkirk, but right. not the series. So, no. so the, it's, again, it's a historical novel about a family where, a British family, but they actually grew up on, um, in the Channel Islands. Now, the Channel Islands were the only part of, I think, the British Empire that was occupied by the Nazis. Oh, so wow. the parents are still on the Channel Islands, the children are of military age. There's three sons and a daughter, and they're scattered. The war, you know, scatters them all over. And yeah. the other thing I'm really enjoying about them is the the they're nice people. <laughs> they're heroic. They're not psychotic. They're not neurotic. I mean, they have challenges. Sure. They have disappointments. Yeah. They have loss. They have all those things. But they're still, like I said, they're 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 heroic. They're nice people, so I'm I'm very much enjoying the that, and I'm also enjoying the fact that it's written from the British perspective. The American perspective comes in at a certain point, like after mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor, but but um, it's it's very much from the the British perspective. So now the reason I'm not reading it right now, right now, is because I I caught up on all those that had been published and the next one's supposed to come out in March. So oh, okay. Will, okay. Yeah. Soon so, to be. Soon to be, right. And I think yes. there'll probably be a couple more after that one too. But anyways, that's that's what I'm reading. So nice. anyways. All right. Well Sadie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I'm going to link to your bio and contact me page from the show notes at accept.com slash five eighteen. So thank you again. Listeners, if you would like to work with Sadie for your application to a master's or an education or public policy programs or law school, she has outstanding experience. Please head over to Sadie's contact me page. Listener, thank you too for joining Sadie Poland and me for our 518th episode. And a quick reminder, master the paradox at the heart of graduate admissions by downloading your free copy of Fitting In and Standing Out, The Paradox at the Heart of Admissions. Grab your copy at accepted.com slash F-I-S-O. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>